Hello, everyone. Here we are again for our next episode of the Primeval series covering Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Today, we're going to wind up chapter 3 and dip into chapter 4. We'll cover a few different topics today and might be able to finish through chapter 4. We'll see. So let's jump in towards the end of chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Let's start with the curse of the woman as a consequence of her disobedience. Recall in chapter 2 where the humans were forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if they did, they were promised certain death. Here's what Genesis 3.16 says. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there is a subtle hierarchy being set up here that places women, remember, as a result of the curse, in a position of inferiority to men. Originally, if you will remember in chapter 1, male and female were created equals and commissioned to rule the earth together. But now, as a consequence of the curse, women take a position of subordinates to men. We see this play out for the most part in ancient history. Uh, women are treated very poorly and disrespectfully. And, and again, that is a consequence of the curse. That is not God's good original intent. And so if you were to read, for instance, the New Testament, through the lens of how we view women in the 21st century Western world, it might look misogynistic or uh, oppressive to women, dismissive of women. It might look that way at first reading. But if you were to take a step back and read it from the point of view of the ancient world, how the ancient world view women basically is one step above you know, your, your livestock, Women were viewed as property. It's actually very empowering for women in that time frame and provides the platform from which they can regain their footing as equals alongside of men. So the goal of the church is to partner with God's spirit in reversing the curse of sin and death. All of it, not just part of it. And so I'm not going to go too deep into this. If you want to dig deeper into this topic, I will link to some videos from Seabed in the description below, an article from N.T. Wright that help uh, explain the egalitarian position. Now, that's just a fancy word to say that women are equal with men. Uh, that is distinct from the complementarian position. Women are equal but have different roles than men. The, eg the egalitarian position says that women can do anything that men can do. Uh, the complementarian role says that women have specific roles and men have specific roles. And so, you know, as Methodists, we are uh, egalitarian. Again, I don't want to get too into that here. It's not really the subject, the broader subject of this podcast. Just wanted to touch on how the text uh, kind of set that tension in place. But again, look at the links below if you want to dig in deeper to that. 
The next story continues to show how the curse affects men differently than women. While women will find meaning and status through their relationships, again, all things being equal, this doesn't hold true for every woman, just like the other doesn't hold true for every man, but all things being equal in general, women achieve status through their families and their marriages. Men will seek meaning and status through their work, through achievement, and both will be frustrated in their efforts. Even today, as the great uh, thinker Henry David Thoreau once wrote, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. That applies just as well to women, but for different reasons. The vast majority just don't get the results out of their efforts they long for in their deepest desires. Now let's skip down to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, what I want to propose here is that this represents the first killing of an animal in order to make clothing for humans. It is necessary as a consequence for their sins. That's why the clothing is needed. Remember, when they sinned, they went and ran and hid because they were afraid. They were excessively self-aware, hyper-conscious of their being exposed before a good and holy God, and they couldn't stand to be in his presence. So God is providing for them to be able to continue in a relationship with him. Is what's going on here. God is demonstrating for humans, several important points they will need to learn in order to continue in a relationship with with him. So that's important point number one. While Adam and Eve no longer have access to the divine resources or grace, which the tree of life represents, they no longer have immortality. They do get to continue in a relationship with God. And that's at God's initiative. He's chasing them down. He's providing for them to continue in a relationship. He's the one reaching out. He's the one chasing them down. He doesn't want to lose the relationship. And so God does not stop relating to humans in this scenario. Apart from all of the other curses, God does not stop relating to human beings. And in killing the animal for skins for clothing, the clothing is intended to help them not shrink back from and hide from God like they did in the garden after they disobeyed. Another important point being demonstrated is God's mercy. Humans aren't immediately getting from God what they rightfully deserve, which is death. That's what the text promised. But God is honoring his sense of justice. Death is demanded for disobedience, and the consequences are transferred to an animal rather than to Adam and Eve. God is showing Adam and Eve mercy. But the consequences don't just go away. They're transferred to another creature. Ultimately, this obviously is foreshadowing what God would one day do through the incarnation and atoning ministry of Jesus Christ. So he's building into the psyche of human beings. If you want to continue in a relationship with me, uh, justice has to be met. Some, Some parameters have to be met. God is modeling the grisly consequences of disobedience in a very visceral way before Adam and Eve and is demonstrating what would become the premise upon which the future Old Testament sacrificial system 
is built. Here's what it says in Leviticus 17.11, one of the books of the law. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That's the principle. A life for a life. And the shedding of blood represents the release of that life from the animal. It says that in the New Testament as well, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God demonstrated for humans this necessary ritual, which although it didn't satisfy God, that that's clearly taught in the New Testament, it was an important practice to help begin training humanity in the serious and deadly consequences of disobedience. That's likely why, as we move on to chapter 4, that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and Cain's was not. Abel's sacrifice involved animal sacrifice in the shedding of blood. Cain's sacrifice was an offering of the fruit of the ground, the text says. The practice of animal sacrifice was further demonstrated by God in various episodes in the life of Abraham, where God seals a covenant with Abraham by cutting animals in half, and then God walks through, uh, demonstrating his commitment to the covenant. And then nothing is required of Abraham in that scenario. Uh, in another scenario, God provides a ram for Abraham to sacrifice on Mount Moriah before the practice even becomes encoded in Old Testament law under Moses. So there are these preliminary episodes where it's clear that God expects atonement to be made for the sin and the shortcoming of human beings. And it's, again, simply foreshadowing what would eventually be accomplished in the life of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, as we move on in chapter 4, there's always the question to deal with, where did Cain get his wife from? And who were the people that wanted to kill him? And so the text doesn't seem at all interested in these questions like we are, but there are two options. One is that there were a pre-existent race of humans who had evolved. In other words, creation wasn't a literal seven-day creation. It was indeed, what science tells us, something that occurred as a series of evolutionary advancements over a long period of time. And a part of that evolution were humans that came about. And the story of Adam and Eve is about particular humans who were created for the purpose of spreading God's order on the rest of creation. So that's one option. The other option is that these other humans are other sons and daughters of Adam and Eve mentioned in Genesis 5. Here's what it says in Genesis 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, does that sound familiar? Named Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So I'm not going to belabor the point, but if you did the math, based on a 900-year lifespan, if Adam had lived only a century longer than 930 years, 
he would have been alive for the birth of Noah. Think about that. So if we allow for an average of eight or nine kids per couple, which in this time frame is very conservative. You know, the physical consequences of sin had not accumulated in humans at this point. So they were much more healthy. That's why they lived almost a thousand years. Another factor, the environment had not become corrupted at this point. And so over 900 years, eight or nine kids per household is a really low figure. You know, even in the 1700s, John Wesley's parents had 19 kids and 10 of those survived. So again, this is a very conservative number to be working from. If you did the math based on those variables, there would have been a million people on the earth during Cain's lifetime. We also need to take into account the testimony of other scripture concerning uh, where did these other people come from. It says in Genesis 3.20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Then in 1 Corinthians 15.45, going to the New Testament, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The first man, according to the New Testament, is Adam. Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Couldn't be any more clear than that. So, of course... This testimony does rub against the grain of what modern science tries to tell us about the origin of human beings. But after the last three years, do you really want to put your trust in the integrity and authority of modern science? Especially in regards to ancient history and metaphysical truth. Come on you know they like to pretend to know more than they actually do. Okay, let's stop there. We'll mine a few gems from the genealogy of Genesis 5 next week, which is where we will get introduced to an interesting character named Enoch and perhaps the ancient book that is named after him. Hope to catch you then. Remember the links down in the description below if you want to check those out. Visit us on our other locations, also linked down below. If you want more content on the Bible and the historic Orthodox Christian faith, I encourage everyone to keep growing and learning because, as the scripture says, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's 1 Timothy 4.8. Be blessed. We'll catch you next time. Have a great week. Bye-bye.